The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. Today we're going to be joined by Joel K. Bourne Jr., and he's got a brand new book out called The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. Now, Joel has a great background, and I'm actually going to let him talk about it in just a moment, but he is an award-winning journalist and former senior editor for the environment at one of my favorite magazines in the whole world, National Geographic. I grew up reading those alongside my grandfather. He was a subscriber, and so am I. I love that magazine. He's covered major environmental issues for the magazine, including the global food crisis of 2008, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and California's recurrent water woes, which, as a California resident, I am well aware of as I peer out onto my brown lawn. Um, He's got a degree in agronomy, and he's going to explain to us his background, but I want to welcome Joel to Go Green Radio. Welcome to, to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jill. It's a great pleasure. Well, we've talked about food systems and modern agriculture quite a bit on Go Green Radio over the years, but I really love your background. It makes your perspective quite unique. And so just to set the stage for our listeners, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your background in farming, uh, attaining a degree in agronomy and what that is, um, and finally, how all that experience led you to become a journalist who's covered some of the most important food-related events in our lifetime. Oh, well, thanks, Jill. Yeah, it was it was sort of a natural evolution for me. Um, I grew up in a small town in eastern North Carolina, uh, and my grandfather had a beautiful farm out in the county, uh, only about five or six miles away. Um, and so I spent most of my childhood either working or playing on the farm. I worked in tobacco when I was a kid, uh, chopped peanuts, cotton, uh, built cattle fences. Uh, you know, I could drive a tractor long before I could drive a car. <laughs> uh, we would bale, bale hay. Uh, you just all the things you can think of. It was a very diversified farm, and uh, I loved it. It was just like I, I couldn't imagine a better existence uh, or a better way to make a living. And so when I, it was time for me to choose a college, um, I only applied to one, and that was NC State, you know, Department of Agronomy, um, where I entered in about 1981, I think. And um, you know, for for your listeners, agronomy, as I define it in the book, and it was as it was taught to me, is a sort of a combination of soil science and plant science for row crop production. So really, this is, this is uh, commercial production farming, uh, mm-hmm. what a lot of people consider big ag. Um, and I thought that was really where my heart was. I thought this was what I wanted to do. But as I, as I learned more and more about it and about sort of the, the, the chemicals that were being used um, and and sort of the the total disregard for for sort of the environmental impacts that were being produced by this type of agriculture, 
I really started to shift my focus and was wondering if I was in the right spot. And every time I would bring up something like organic agriculture, they would say, oh, great for your garden, but uh, it'll never feed the world, and that's what we're here to do. So um, I became quite disillusioned, and by the time I graduated, it was in the middle of the farm crisis in 1985. And this was the year that Willie Nelson and Neil Young and John Mellencamp staged the first farm aid because there was mm-hmm. so such a glut of grain uh, flowing from the United States fields uh, that farmers were going bankrupt left and right. And this was the direct result of uh, Earl Butts, who was Secretary of the Agriculture in 1972, his policy of grow fence row to fence row. You know, the American farmer was going to flex its muscle and we were going to feed the world. Uh, and what we didn't realize then was the world really couldn't afford to be fed. So it, it led to a glut of grain uh, on, on the U.S. market. Uh, and, I, and I decided that when I saw the best farmers, the men I'd respected all around me uh, going bankrupt, I thought, wow, um, maybe I need to try something else. And, <laughs> and I'd been uh, writing all my during high school and college, and my professors always uh, said I, I did real well at that. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give this journalism thing a try. This is, sounds pretty fun. And here I am 30 years later still at it. So it was a, it was a wise decision. But, uh, but my background in, in agriculture actually turned out to serve me quite well in, the, in journalism because uh, most journalists, as you probably know, have liberal arts degrees and uh, right. uh, English or, or political science very useful for them when they're covering politics. Um, very few. I have, I've met none, actually, that have a degree in agronomy. So I, I, was, uh, I was well, well schooled to, um, to cover natural resource issues so I could understand what was going on at the California drought or, or when wetlands were being lost down in Louisiana, and I went down there to talk to the shrimpers and, and commercial fishermen down there. So it actually uh, stood me in great stead. And I, and I used to tease my colleagues at National Geographic um, when I would go on these assignments, and I would say, yeah, they wanted me to go because I'm the only one who speaks fluent redneck, um, <laughs> which, is, which is, is as true today as it was back then. So, um, so it actually has, has served me quite well. Well, you know, and, and what I love about your book, The End of Plenty, and by the way, it's readily available, folks. You can even, I believe, buy it on Amazon, but you can just Google The End of Plenty by Joel Kaborn Jr., and you'll find uh, the book. But but it's part history, part current events, and part, you know, future projections. And what I loved about it so much was that it wasn't just a report on what is happening or what could happen, but you also include why things are going on. And you talk about different parts of the world and different um, agricultural issues. And you really great, gave a great lead up to each of those situations, events, or even catastrophes as to not just what was going on with the resources, but what was going on with public policy um, that led to some of those issues. And we'll talk about that in a moment. You know, one of the biggest challenges that I have on this show, and perhaps you have this, you know, in writing for National Geographic, is relating huge monumental problems like climate change and like food riots in faraway countries to everyday Americans in a way that um, makes it clear to them that these events could be disruptive to our lives, even here in the heartland of America. How do you tether climate change to the kitchen tables of America? Sure. Well, and it's very it's it's very difficult. Many times we talk about um, people starving, and or, you know, almost uh, 800 million people starving around the world, two billion that don't get the nutrients they need, uh, and here we are in the land of plenty, where we've got a plethora of food, and 
you know, a, a, an embarrassing abundance. Um, but however, we also uh, we saw that during the food crisis of 2008, you know, the number of people in the United States who uh, needed food stamp assistance to help feed their families doubled in the United States, went from about 20 million, which it had been for about 20 years, uh, to almost 40 to 45 million uh, Americans. 15% of all Americans now need food assistance. So uh, that's one way that we can say, okay, you know, it's not just happening elsewhere. Uh, the other thing that I also point out, too, is you can look at the two droughts, the back-to-back droughts we had in 2012 and 2013 that mm-hmm. affected half of the nation's farmland, cost us $30 billion. We saw milk prices rise. We saw meat prices rise. You know, they're still not settling back down from, uh, from those the vo- very volatile prices of, uh, of just a few years ago, even though we've had a couple of very good years since then. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so these things are going to fa- it's going to hit us more in the pocketbook than say it will hit a sub-Saharan African farmer who has to watch his children starve. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't make it any less painful for us, and it's going to be a, uh, a tremendous challenge. Now, what mm-hmm. I tried to one of the scariest studies that I saw in the book, and again, this is something that has a, an enormous potential to affect us here, uh, is about climate change. Uh, the Royal Society put a broad review of climate change studies and their impact on agriculture. Uh, published it a few years ago, uh, and found that if we get to a four degree Celsius increase, which our emissions are currently on track to put us, uh, we could make half of our agricultural land in the world unsuitable for agriculture. And that's when wow. global population is going to hit 11.2 billion, or is estimated to predict it. So here we are at 7.2. That's another 4 billion people that we're going to have to feed on half the land, potentially on half the land. And wow. that's where things really start to get um, dicey. And then you start pointing to things like the, the immigration crisis that's going on in Europe. Mm-hmm. And you know, now they're fleeing violence, but food security is at the bottom of a lot of these uh, immigrants' reasons for leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Syrian civil war you know, was preceded by two years of drought. So these things, you know, the, the, the French Revolution, people forget, was caused by bread riots where... Women yeah. demanded, you know, just prices for their bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, it launched this, it, it sent uh, France into this huge conflagration. So uh, Norman Borlaug, who was the father of the Green Revolution, had this great quote. You know, he said, if you, if you want peace, uh, cultivate justice, but also cultivate the fields, because without bread, there will be no peace. And Absolutely. this was from the Nobel Peace Prize laureate in 1970. So I, I think that's, that, that's still the case today, even though we're growing a lot more food. Well, and I know that even the Department of Defense here in the U.S. has recognized this as one of the issues that they believe is a risk for national security that is linked to climate change. I mean, they foresee a tremendous amount of climate refugees and and immigration of folks because of food and water um, and what that will mean. And the military has already begun looking at plans um, to, to deal with this and actually have for many, many years. I mean, this isn't new to the United States military at all. Um, and in fact, we, I had a four-star Marine Corps general on my show 
uh, not too long ago, and he said, look, when we're on the battlefield, we don't wait for 100% uh, assurity of the intelligence that we've got. If we've got even 80%, we'll act on that. And when it comes to climate change and what we're seeing in the world, we've got ample evidence um, for us to act on that and and." Food insecurity is one of the biggest risks that they see coming our way as a as a result of climate change. Um, You're absolutely think, right. Yep. Yeah. And now, you know, you talked about global grain reserves, and that's really not an issue I know much about. And I, I'm wondering if our listeners feel the same way. I'd love for you to talk to us about what they are and how the surplus amount has changed over time and, and some of your concerns about global grain reserves. Sure. Um uh, every year, and now we're, basically the book is focused on three grains that provide 80 to 90 percent of all our calories, and that's, that's wheat, rice, and maize, or corn as we call it in the United States. So uh, oddly enough, even though there are 50,000 plants that are edible on the planet, these three crops uh, provide the bulk of the calories for most of the world's people. Um, wow. And most years, we grow enough, uh, we grow more than we need. Um, so typically, you know, there'll be a, a pretty good size surplus that countries produce in the United States or Russia or France um, uh, in Europe. Australia is a big surplus producer, Brazil. Um, and they will sell what they can, but also store some of that and keep it in reserve uh, in case there's a bad year next year. This is what farmers have been doing forever uh, with grain storage. So uh, thanks to the great uh, the Green Revolution that caused an incredible increase in yields uh, during the 60s and 70s, um, we uh, typically did not, um, uh, uh, we would use more grain than we produced. Uh, like in the 70s, it was like three years. Three years, mm-hmm. we, we had a bad year, bad crop year, so we used more grain. We had to dig into the surpluses and, and wind them down a little bit. The 80s were a little bit drier. There were four years there in, during the 80s where we actually utilized more grain than we produced. The 90s, it was back down to three because they were pretty, pretty good years in the 90s. But since 2000, the world has utilized, which means either uh, uh, eaten, fed to cattle, fed to our cars through biofuels, more grain than we produced in eight of the first 12 years. And what wow. this does is has whittled stockpiles down to the lowest level they've been since the 1970s, when a third of the world was hungry. Now, this makes prices extremely volatile. When One of the other things that uh, food surpluses do is they sort of level out prices. So they can't get too high because then countries will start digging into the surplus and putting those on the market, and, and it levels the price out. It's a way of keeping prices low so people don't panic and you don't have uh, dramatic increases in of bread prices in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we're now seeing is now that uh, these, this supply and demand curve, demand is slowly but steadily outstripping supply. So we're seeing more and more years where we're utilizing more grain than we're producing, and we're whittling down our stockpiles to low levels. And this this causes a lot of agricultural economists and politicians a lot of concern. Wow, I can understand that. Gosh, it takes my breath away to to talk about some of this, but we're going to talk through some of, some of the issues, but also some of the potential solutions as we go through the show. So folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Joel K. Bourne Jr. and his new book, The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. Yeah. 
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And in case you are just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Joel K. Bourne, Jr. He is a writer for National Geographic and an award-winning journalist. Um, And he has a brand new book out called The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. And it is an incredibly well-written book, very enlightening. And if you want to know what's going on with our food systems and all of the various, not just agricultural practices um, that are going on, but also, you know, the public policy piece and how much that impacts our food systems in the world. This book is the go-to resource. Now, in the last segment, Joel, you referenced the Green Revolution, and those of us in the environmental echo chamber, we all know what that is, but it's not something that comes up unfortunately, in most of our public schools history and science classes. And so I'd really like for you to help our listeners understand what the Green Revolution is, was, um, and, and how this pivotal moment in human history has shaped the food systems of the world today. Sure. The Green Revolution was probably you know, the most significant thing to happen in, um, in terms of the, the planet, uh, really over the last century. And it started uh, really in the 1930s with Vice President Henry Wallace, who was a great uh, crop breeder himself. He was the the uh, founder of uh, um, Pioneer Hybrid Corn Seeds. He was from Iowa. He's from a very distinguished farm family there. Well, he took a tour to Mexico, 
uh, with the president of Mexico and just saw just impoverished farmers uh, who were starving. Their corn was just not yielding at all. Their wheat yields were covered with this rust disease. Um, and at that point, they could sense World War II building. There was nothing they could do um, to, to help. Uh, and Mexico was becoming more and more dependent on U.S. for food imports. So Wallace called his friends at the Rockefeller Foundation and asked them if there was anything they could do to help Mexico uh, get its agriculture up and running. And this became the start of the Green Revolution. And they uh, started a little research farm down there. They brought a, a well-known plant breeder named uh, Norman Borlaug, who was a young man at the time, down there to see if he couldn't work on this. Um, and Borlaug became something of a legend. Uh, within 10 years, he had uh, developed wheat that were resistant to these rust diseases that were wiping out Mexican farmers' yields. The next 10 years, he developed a very short-statured dwarf wheat that would really suck up nitrogen and water and yield like crazy. Uh, he made Mexico self-sufficient in wheat within about 15 years, uh, and it was just incredible. So this, uh, the rice researchers over in the Philippines, also funded by Rockefeller and the Ford Foundations, took Borlaug's work and said, okay, well, he did it with wheat, let's do it with rice. They succeeded even faster. Within a year or two, they had come up with a semidwarf uh, variety of rice called IRA that yielded 10 times greater than the national, uh, I mean, the world average. So this, even though global population has nearly tripled since 1950 when these gentlemen first started working on it, these researchers, these high-yield varieties, varieties of, of, of rice and wheat and eventually maize uh, has more than kept up. So the, even when Borlaug started, about a third of the global population was hungry. By the time he was finished today, we've got maybe 12% of the global population who doesn't get enough calories to eat. Just a tremendous thing. So just to give your listeners an idea of the perspective, um, it took a 1,000 years for farmers to triple wheat yields from about a half ton per hectare to uh, one and a half ton per hectare or two. It took Borlaug and his colleagues only 40 years to make that, to triple it again from two tons per hectare to six. Wow. And there's been no greater increase in food production in the history of the planet. It was just a tremendous, tremendous um, improvement. And it allowed the great population boom that was occurring at the time uh, to largely be fed. Mm-hmm. And it arguably saved millions of people from starvation because his um, his work was transported around the globe and in various uh, places. Of course, the U.S. certainly, you know, embraced it. Um, but there are a lot of critics of the Green Revolution, uh, and and I want you to talk to us about um, some of the beefs that folks have with the Green Revolution and some of the upshots of monocultures soil degradation, and the human health risks of the increased use of pesticides. Sure, and this is this was what we're finding, that the Green Revolution was a double-edged sword. Even though it produced an enormous amount of food, it was very chemical and water-intensive. You know, you needed the fertilizers to get the yields. You needed the pesticides to protect the monocultures because it, there weren't a variety of crops in the field anymore. And you needed water to make all these things yield to their utter, uh, utmost potential. And now in all those three categories, we're starting to see uh, the environmental impact. And some of it has been tragic and dramatic. You know, we now have uh, pesticides in virtually every bit of groundwater in the United States. Uh, I saw a study from the USGS the other day that said we're even seeing Roundup uh, glyphosate uh, byproducts and breakdown products in our rain. 
uh, mm. which is hard to imagine. Uh, we're starting to see water withdrawal problems in places uh, such as India, which had uh, was sort of the poster child for the Korean Revolution. India went from a, what they called a ship-to-mouth existence, where they were dependent on each ship of grain to come in to stave off starvation, uh, to actually exporting grain some years. But the cost in water has been just tremendous. So mm-hmm. they've they put in a lot of subsidized irrigation in the north of India, uh, and that uh, researchers have now measured that withdrawal with the GRACE satellites and found that that is the greatest, the irrigation belt of northern India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh is the greatest loss of Earth's mass, uh, second only to the melting of the glaciers in Greenland and, uh, and Antarctica. So this tremendous uh, withdrawal of water has had an enormous impact. And, of course, the health impacts of all these pesticides. I, I write in the book about uh, in the Punjab of India, which had the greatest success from the Green Revolution, and well, we're now farmers are suffering from contaminated water. They're having a spate of cancers that that are unfortunately particularly affecting girls and women. Um, and the poverty, because the prices are so low, the the input costs of the fertilizer and the pesticides are so high that many farmers are actually committing suicide in the fields, drinking the very pesticides that are supposed to protect their livelihood. Um, so the green revolution is clearly over uh, in many parts of the world and. Uh, the great yield growth that we've seen uh, since the 1960s has plateaued, particularly on wheat and rice. So we're no longer making these great gains every year on the amount of crop we grow per acre, uh, which means there's been intense pressure to expand our farmland acres. And we Mm -hmm. already farm 40% of all the dry land on Earth. It is the largest agriculture, the largest human footprint. Uh, And expanding it means things like burning down patches of the Amazon, or going into the African rainforest or the African savanna. So uh, things that we really don't want to do uh, to tip the balance, uh, tip our carbon balance even further uh, in the direction it's heading. I thought it was so interesting in the book when you talked about, uh, you know, I mean, we talk a lot about grains, but you also talked about uh, the Chinese pork issue <laughs> and how much pork, um, you know, they consume and as a result, how much grain they have to feed those hogs in order to meet that demand. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the unrest uh, that was caused by the 2008 global food crisis. And in your book, I thought it was so interesting that you linked the uprising in Tiananmen Square to pork rationing. And again, you know, that's just not part of the story I had ever heard before. So talk to us about the role that pork plays in Chinese social and political stability. And furthermore, um, you know, how feeding all the hogs in order to create all that pork is affecting the world's food markets and agricultural practices. Sure. Well, this is one of the more surprising uh, factoids that I came up with in the book uh, as I was researching it, and I had no idea. I thought Tiananmen Square, which occurred in uh, 1989, and uh, you know was probably the most uh, um, violent uh, political opposition China has seen in a long, long time. I thought it was a democracy movement. You know, students, yeah. you know, clamoring for more rights. Well, when you go to China and you talk to the researchers there, they're like, "Well, actually, yes, there was an element of that, but the primary reason people were so angry." Uh, was there had been pork rationing for the previous year. And these riots had been going on in all of China's major cities for the previous year. And I couldn't help but remember the picture of that iconic image of the man with the shopping bag staring down the Red Army tank. 
mm-hmm. um, or the People's Army tank, and thinking, oh, does he have pork in that bag? You know, was, this, <laughs> was this something? You know, here, here was a classic example of we saw of a man with food um, stopping, uh, trying to stop the army from crushing a, a democratic protest. And shortly after that, China started going toward cathode productions, these concentrated animal feeding operations that we have in the United States and Europe, where pigs are very, you know, they're grazed indoors, very concentrated. Um, They started giving tax breaks to set these up to increase production of pork in China. And they even set aside a strategic pork reserve, just as we have a strategic petroleum reserve in the United States to keep the price of oil low. They have a strategic pork reserve of hundreds of thousands of tons of of frozen pork sitting in warehouses ready to go and be distributed should the pork prices get too high. Uh, Ding Xiaoping used to, used to say that he, the first thing he read in the morning in the, in the China papers was the price of pork, because that's how he gauged the, chi- the zeitgeist of the Chinese population. Huh. Now, in about 19... Now, the other aspect of the story is China no longer has the capability to feed both its people and its pigs. Half the pigs in the world now live in China, about 600 million. Um, and they were always, China was always proudly self-sufficient. They didn't want mm-hmm. to be dependent on any other country to feed themselves. But in 94, they realized that they just, they just weren't going to have enough, so they started buying soybeans. They went from being an exporter of soybeans to an importer of soybeans. And their demand skyrocketed, and that demand was was the large factor behind the huge soy revolution that rolled into Brazil and Argentina during the 1990s and continues to expand today. So, you know, part and parcel of what we saw in the 90s and, and, and 2000s with deforestation, something like 16 million acres uh, uh, or hectares a year, was driven by the soy expansion uh, that were uh, planted to feed Chinese hawks. So it has wow. an enormous implication on both the environment and grain prices around the world, China's demand for pork. Well, and if China can pay more for those grains, how does that impact pricing for the poor who are looking for some of the same commodities but you know don't have the buying power that the Chinese government has? How does that work? Well, it's just like uh, the market's everywhere. You know, As soon as there's a, a big buyer at the table, prices go up, mm-hmm. and they're having to compete with... Um, Things like Chinese pork buyers, uh, Chinese grain buyers, uh, as well as you know, biofuels, of course, which is now taking out uh, about 40% of the U.S. corn crop as well. And another factor that's kept prices high. Yeah, uh, that makes it even more difficult. It's not always just um, you know lack of supply, but a lack of, of money to compete with those market prices for the poor, and they just get hungrier. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Joel and his new book, The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. More right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. In case you're just tuning in, our guest today is Joel K. Bourne Jr. He's got a brand new book out called The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. In the book, Joel, you mentioned that China, South Korea, and Saudi Arabia are quietly gobbling up millions of hectares of farmland in Africa, South America, the Ukraine, Australia, the Philippines, and elsewhere. And they're seeing this as sort of an agricultural lifeboat for the coming storm. Talk to us about why this is happening and the geopolitical ramifications. Sure. We did a story about this in uh, National Geographic, and I report on some of that in the book as well. And uh, these are the, the land grabs, the very controversial land sales and land leases that have been going on uh, increasingly since the food crisis in 2008. Uh, there was even a very prominent Chinese economist who had encouraged the Chinese government to start doing this. To, because if you think about it, China is 1.2 billion people. Um, and yet they have the water availability uh, per, per capita of about the state of Israel. So they're, they're, they are um, really dependent on water, and they're having very difficult water issues, both from contamination um, uh, as well as just drought. So uh, they're looking ahead as their population grows and saying, okay, where are we going to get the food? Um, Saudi Arabia, a lot of these countries that are very land uh, poor but cash rich, are also going into countries uh, like Sub-Saharan Africa, areas that I report on like Mozambique or Ethiopia or, as you said, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, parts of Russia, uh, and leasing huge swaths of land that they're put, trying to put into production. Uh, and again, you know, this is one of those things. It's a double-edged sword. Some people in the development community say, wow, we've been trying to get private investment in agriculture in Africa for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord, now it's here. Mm-hmm. Others are saying, wow, these, com- these uh, companies are coming in, um, and 
but they're going to export the grain, and then they're kicking off the local farmers. Uh, and we saw some evidence of that uh, in uh, in Mozambique when I was down there, where the government had leased 20,000 hectares, huge wow. property on the Limpopo River, uh, to a Chinese company that was putting in uh, a rice farm. And even though the Chinese promised to sell the rice locally, to train local farmers, to employ local people, it really wasn't happening. A lot of the promises did not come to fruition, and so the locals were very angry. Um, so it's one of those things that, uh, as one of the Mozambique officials explained to me, he said, look, this, cry, this one farm can keep us, you know, can have our, ex, our imports of rice. So, you know, because of, they think it's going to be so productive. But at the same time, if you displace 10,000 farmers, that's not good either. Um, well, one of the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and you know, one of the things I can't help but as a former military officer that, that really concerns me about that is, and we've seen this with the United States a lot, is that when we have foreign investments, oftentimes our military is called in to protect those foreign investments. And, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that if there are local uprisings and pushback against, you know, uh, foreign investors who take land and displace workers that, you know, they would also send in security forces of some kind. And then you've got extra militarization in areas to protect these investments that we've never seen before. And that's concerning as well. It, it is concerning. And, and one of the things I focused on was, um, oh, and, you know, the, the gold standard here is if you can get the big growers, the commercial people who are bringing in the technology and bringing in the inputs and creating the infrastructure, the roads and the ports, um, and help them contract with the small growers. You know, it's almost like having agricultural extension right there in your backyard where they can help you with fertilizer inputs. They can help you with getting better seeds, help you with some of the technology, maybe, you know, lease their tractor to come uh, help plow your fields. Then you start getting a, a more equitable relationship between uh, poor small farmers and large landowners, and that's really the the golden rule that I think everybody is striving for, and no one's yet figured out quite how to achieve to get these big corporate farms and the small farmers who are so important in Africa grow seventy percent of the food right now, mm -hmm. um, working together in ways that make that both can where both can prosper, but uh, certainly getting in bed with China is always um, uh, a challenge, and yet. Mm -hmm. China's influence in Africa is, is, is astounding. They are putting money in there like nobody's business. <laughs> well, so, um, if it's a symbiotic relationship where, you know, truly the goal is to help, you know, Chinese uh, consumers and, you know, African economies, that's one thing. But, you know, if it's a, a bit more one-sided and a bit more self-serving, then you've got You've got some imbalances that could cause conflict. Well, that and, and that is the great challenge. And, and I, when you talk to people on the ground, you know, the, in Mozambique, China built the Legislative Assembly building. They built the president's house. And I was <laughs> talking to, to one, of the, one of the young men that I met over there, and he said, um, you know, you can turn down when they come and ask you for something, you can turn them down. But if a man builds your house, after a while, it gets embarrassing. He said, so all these... <laughs> All these, all these projects that China is giving away with no strings attached actually has a fair number of strings attached. And they were very disillusioned that, you know, my children, he said, my child is going to school under a tree, you know, and yet China is building palaces and roads. You know, where's the benefit for the people? And I, I think yeah. for places in sub-Saharan sub Africa, making that, 
those profits trickle down into real true benefits on the ground for the people is, is, is the challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, in your book, you have a chapter entitled Food, Fuel, and Profit, and it really goes to the heart of, you know, one of the big controversies in agriculture today, and that is the role of biofuels on the one hand, reducing carbon emissions, supposedly, <laughs> although if you look at the life cycle of how biofuels are produced, maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but that they might compete with the food supply. Talk to us about this issue of how, you know, feedstock is becoming uh, now fuel stock. Sure. And again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're taking 40% of our corn crop and putting it into our gas tanks uh, mm-hmm. in the United States every year. And to give your listeners a perspective, that's enough corn to feed everyone in Africa for a year. That's an enormous wow. amount of corn. Uh, Europe is doing the same thing. They've had the same sort of subsidies and mandates going on. And of course, uh, since most of their rolling stock is diesel, uh, they're growing oil seeds. They're growing soy, rapeseed, canola, uh, which we call canola, uh, and sunflower. That's displacing wheat because they like to grow in the same climates and same soils as, as wheat. Now, uh, the use of land dedicated to biofuels, according to some estimates, is supposed to quadruple, so increase four times uh, between now and 2030, Holy which cow. takes, it'll be, I think the estimate was 10% of the arable land of the United States, 15% of the arable land in Europe, that, and that's land that's not growing food crops, but simply growing crops for our cars. And we started to see this with palm oil plantations uh, in places like uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, where they're actually going in and taking down old rainforest, you know, virgin rainforest to plant palm plantations. Wow. Uh, and again, palm oil makes a great biofuel, but uh, at this point in our climate history, I think we need those rainforests more. Uh, and again, uh, it's just a matter of where we place our emphasis. Now, we were, these were only supposed to be food-based biofuels. were only supposed to be a transitional thing before we got to real sort of second-generation biofuels. Unfortunately, things like algae fuel uh, and switchgrass have just, have just really failed to materialize in any meaningful way. And so here we are stuck with, with fairly significant subsidized uh, fuel that gives us, uh, at least in the United States with corn, very little environmental benefit. Uh, and it's become mostly a subsidy to U.S. corn farmers, who are already among the highest subsidized in the world. Mm-hmm. So places like Brazil, where they're using it for sugarcane, much greener, much cleaner, but again, uh, as the demand for super green uh, ethanol grows, they're also displacing ranchers in Brazil, from moving from Sao Paulo to into Mato Grosso, and moving those ranchers into places like the Amazon. So it's a trickle-down domino effect that, that is pointed straight at uh, our great tropical rainforests. And we really have to be careful about how we allocate or, or you know, um, how we use our arable land. I mean, that's one of the things that you talk about in the book is that, you know, we really have to be careful about how we treat this thin layer of soil that's warm enough, fertile enough, and wet enough to grow crops. Talk to us about this issue of production and arable land and what we really have to work with in order to feed the world's population. Well, now, and this is is really the important part because um, uh, people go, well, we were here before, we used our brains, our technology, we got out of this mess, so why can't we do it again? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an argument I hear a lot. Um, But as you mentioned... Uh, we don't. The playing field is different now. It's very different. 
uh, it used to be we had a fair amount of land we could expand into without too much penalty. Um, and that's not the case anymore. And in fact, we're losing arable land to the tune of some estimates of something like 30 million hectares a year. So that's the size of the Philippines, a chunk of land the size of the Philippines we're losing to degradation, development, you name it. Um, just a tremendous amount. So our land base is actually shrinking. And yet, uh, agricultural uh, experts are now saying, we, in order to make sure everyone's reasonably fed by the middle of the century, we need to double our food production. And this is in, the, you know, in, in light of both uh, growing population, but also our growing wealth, which uh, makes us eat more meat, as we saw in China, and increases our, our demand for grains. Uh, so, so having this thin layer of soil, and I never forget my soil science professor at, uh, at NC State, a great guy named Joe Kleiss, used to say, if you call it dirt in my classroom, you're dropping a letter grade. <laughs> for him, you know, dirt was something you picked out under your fingernails. Soil was just something that was almost sacred. And yet in places like the U.S. Midwest, we're losing it 10 times faster than it's regenerating. Uh, and, you know, this is an area of glacial loess that is deep, you know, had these wonderfully deep topsoil, um, and we're just wasting it right down the Mississippi River with the way we're currently uh, farming. So uh, really preserving our soil is, is so key to increasing food security for future generations. Um, it really should be the primary focus of every farmer. Mm-hmm. Well said. And on that, we've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, much more with Joel Caborn Jr. and his book, The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all be with us today. You know, as a mom of three, these kinds of issues really concern me because I've spent so much of my time um, over my 23-year tenure as a mom making sure that my kids ate good, nutritious food. And, um, you know, the idea that food insecurity is becoming a greater and greater issue as our climate changes and as the world's population increases really, uh, really concerns me. And one of the great things about Joel's new book is that it doesn't just outline what the problems are. He also focuses on some really innovative people and groups who have some solutions that may help us get uh, get the food that we need to feed the world. Um, I'd love for you to tell us about some of those innovators, Joel. Um, I was really interested in what Brian O'Hanlon is doing uh, with what you call the blue revolution, his ocean work. Talk to us sure. about that. Sure, and, and again, there are, there are many ways to solve this problem. And in the book, I try to present the, the great challenge in the first half of the book and then present ways that we can, that we can get around it in the next half. And uh, the two great ways of doing this, of course, you either increase your supply of good food uh, protein or you cut your demand. And Brian O'Hanlon is this young entrepreneur from New York, you know, Long Island, grew up in Fulton Fish Market. Uh, his family was in the seafood business and... His, his family was saying, you know what, uh, the future of, of, of uh, selling fish is in aquacultured fish, but nobody grows the type of fish we want to eat. Somebody has got to figure out how to raise these saltwater species. And mm-hmm. so he took that on as his life's mission and worked very hard and now is, is, is this huge offshore fish farm off the coast of Panama in deep water where he's raising cobia, uh, a sport fish uh, where I'm from in the southeast, but uh, delicious, high in omega-3s, and it's in this very deep part of the, uh, off the Panama shelf where the pollution the fish generate is, is utilized almost immediately by the primary producers. Um, so it's not creating any noticeable pollution outside the pens. Uh, and I actually dove down in one of these pens with him, and you know, you're sitting in a pen with 30,000 fish, all of them about a yard long, all looking at you as if you might be the next meal. Um, <laughs> But he is creating an enormous uh, value and, in, and a healthy protein uh, very efficiently. And aquaculture is one of the solutions, really, uh, to our world food crisis. We have a lot of the ocean that we have not even tapped. And yet, uh, this was Jacques Cousteau's great dream uh, in the 1970s, to go from hunter-gatherers of the ocean, where we're really you know, we're killing these wild fish stocks by overfishing them, to actually being farmers of the sea. And people like O'Hanlon are showing the way with these, this tremendous offshore uh, investment in this deep-water offshore fish farm. I think his company's called Open Blue. Um, and that's one of the ways. Other ways, you know, there are many types of aquaculture we look at that are sustainable. Because it, in the United States, it often gets a bad rap because we think mm-hmm. of the shrimp farms uh, that, that took out so many mangroves and, and, in Latin America and in Asia, or, or we think of salmon farms that are so densely packed, they're almost, you know, disease, bound to get some sort of disease or sickness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's really a lot of aquaculture that's not like that. 
Uh, I talk a lot about shellfish aquaculture, which is incredibly productive, produces wonderful uh, seafood product, and also, since they're filter feeders, helps actually clean the water they're in. Wow. So, uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan. Well, you also talk about a 35-year-old Iowa farmer who's working in the Ukraine, and I'd love for you to talk about what's happening with food production there and what resource they are rich in. Sure. Uh, Justin Brooke is this wonderful kid from Iowa. He's not a kid, I guess a young man, uh, who grew up on his family's farm and decided to go to Ukraine to farm for Morgan Stanley during the middle of this uh, farm crisis when uh, Morgan Stanley, the big investment bank, thought farming was the next big thing. Mm-hmm. So he ended up getting there, landing there, loving it. And one of the things we, you know, now in the news, we all, all only hear about Ukraine's civil war, and it's, it's completely tragic. If they can ever settle their political differences, Ukraine could be an, an agricultural powerhouse like none other. Historically, it was the breadbasket of Europe. It has this en- enormous amount of some of the richest soils on earth. And when I met Brooke, he was like, you know, this country could be a first world country overnight if they could just get uh, both land tenure to allow people to borrow money f- you know, for inputs on their land mm-hmm. um, uh, and enable them to sell land. So, and it's it's been a very sensitive issue. This is a, a country that's still reeling from its sort of post-Soviet hangover, uh, but its agricultural potential potential is off the charts. And he said he would buy land there overnight, you know, tomorrow if they would allow him to do so, just because he thought it was such a great place to farm. And he knew mm-hmm. many of his friends back in Iowa would do the same thing. So wow. I think the potential for both the Ukrainians to improve their agriculture and close the great yield gaps that they currently experience. Because they're, they're now yielding half of what farmers in Iowa are yielding, and yet they're on the same land. So their potential yields are just as high as ours um, if they can just get the technology and the financing to make it happen. So there right. are many places like that where we can close these yield gaps and grow more food. Same thing in Africa, right? I mean, um, you know, you talked in the book a lot about the Malawi miracle. Um, what's That's happening right. there? Well, Malawi is one of those uh, classic case studies, and uh, you know the development experts I spoke to said if you can make it happen in Malawi, where population is slated to triple and where yields are very low, um, then you can make it anywhere in Africa. And we we, told, we look at investigate two different programs that are looking at two different ways of helping them do that. One is the Millennium Village, where they're using donated fertilizer, donated high yielding seeds uh, to help people improve their crop yields, and they're having great success but at a quite a high cost. Uh, the other is a more agroecological project up in the northern part of the country uh, where they're using legumes and crop rotation and diversification to help farmers there at very little cost, uh, but a little more labor, uh, increase their yields and their food security. And, and both have shown excellent success uh, in helping uh, African farmers grow more food. Because uh, African farmers, they work so hard. They're sharp people. They are really, and they're desperate for uh, the type of technology they need to improve their lives. Uh, I'm a real big fan of, of Africa. I think, I, I think the people are wonderful, and uh, I think they've got a great potential. They've got all the resources and everything in front of them to make, uh, make themselves just a spectacular part of the world economy. So I think, and I think it's going to happen. 
That's that's exciting news, and I'm happy for them and happy for the world because, uh, you know, that that continent has suffered so much um, that if they can get their food production, I know they need a lot of infrastructure as well to move, you know, have the roads and ports to move all of those goods inland and then back outland if they, if they were going to be exporting. But um, that's exciting. And a lot of people feel like Africa really is the economy to watch in the 21st century, and that's very you know, exciting. They've got, uh, what is it said, of the top 10 fastest growing economies? Africa's eight mm-hmm. of them are in Africa. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is, a, it could be the next Asian tiger region. But, and this is the big but, uh, they have to start educating their children. They, mm-hmm. And this is one of the things I talk about in the, in, in the book, and it is probably the most important we can, thing we can do, is to start a pink revolution in places where the fertility rate is still so high. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no law that says we have to get to 9.7 billion by 2050 or 11.2 by 2100. Uh, researchers, time and time again, have found if you simply educate girls to the sixth grade, give them the opportunity for family planning services, contraceptives, the support of the governments to make the decisions to have only the number of children that they want, then mm-hmm. you can decrease fertility rates very quickly and make this it, it, the demographic transition, is what the demographers call it, where mm-hmm. you women transition from going to having seven or eight children down to two or three. And it brings a host of benefits. Many think what we're seeing happening in China and India was in large part due to um, the uh, one-child policy that China did very drastically in in the 1970s, as well as India's efforts uh, to reduce its population growth. Now, uh, they're very controversial, or they were then, uh, but they don't have to be. No, they don't. It's not like we're going to... Yeah, and we don't have to enforce this on people. I mean, this is something that they will they will have to do on their own, but we can certainly help them down that path. And it would Absolutely. be the best thing we do to liberate their young women and to help them achieve their potential. It's just it's just a no-brainer. Well said. Joel, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Folks, thanks for joining us today. You know we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, I hope you have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.